Section 4 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 9, July 1898. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devin Tatlow, Washington, D.C. The Historical Development of the National Capital by Marcus Baker of the U.S. Geological Survey. Among all great capitals of the world, the capital of the United States stands out unique. In its origin, development, and government, Washington has no counterpart. There is but one Washington. That the national capital is unlike other cities in the United States is matter of common observation and remark. Its wide, asphalt-covered avenues, its shaded trees, its parks and public statues. These outward shows usually first arrest attention and excite comment. The roominess of the streets and the leisurely air of those who use them are also often remarked on by visiting strangers. The smoothness and spaciousness of the highways seem to be a perpetual source of delight, while the want of commercial bustle and rush and turmoil in the streets is to many a visitor visible evidence of the laziness and indifference engendered by the public service. Whether this judgment be wise or otherwise, it is not for those judged to determine. Yet we know that though first impressions are prone to last, it is not because of their accuracy. And from judgments we often learn more of the quality of the judge than of that concerning which he pronounces judgment. Most of our large cities are given over to manufacturers and commerce. The energy of the citizens is given to making things, to transporting them, to buying and to selling. Business activity and prosperity to the resident of such cities means crowded and noisy streets, filled with endless streams of men, women, and traffic, horses, trolley cars, cobblestones, policemen, street fakirs, Big wagons, little wagons, automobiles, with fake extras of yellow journals shouted above all the din. To those whose lives are spent in such surroundings, Washington seems dull and stupid. Washington is now nearly a century old, it having been first occupied as the seat of government in 1800. It was on June 15th of that year that the public offices were first opened, and on November 22nd, following that Congress for the first time met in Washington. At the close of the Revolution, when Congress was in session in Philadelphia, it will be remembered some of the unpaid soldiers grew impatient at the delay in settling their accounts. To hasten the settlement and stimulate what they deemed a dawdling and lazy deliberative Congress to prompt action, these soldiers made a threatening demonstration about the old state house where Congress was then in session. Just as the present war with Spain has suddenly and profoundly affected the thinking, the outlook and the points of view of all who think, so this little demonstration to hasten the payment of money do taught Congress, the apt pupil, a lesson which the teacher, a mutinous soldiery, neither knew nor dreamed of. Our forefathers had chafed under the presence and support of an army maintained against the citizens, at the cost of the citizens, and in the interest of the sovereign.
When their own citizen soldiery grew numerous, a new view suddenly appeared, and with it a new danger. Out of this new view, and from this real or supposed menace, came the decision, thoughtfully and resolutely taken, that the seat of government of the United States must be where only the United States have exclusive jurisdiction and control. This new created state, this then small star in the galaxy of nations, was designed to be, and its founders believed it was to become, a great nation. So believing, they deliberated and determined that it should have a permanent home of its own, where its laws could be made, interpreted, and executed without improper interferences or influence of any kind or from any source. The conclusion was to select a tract and build a permanent home as the seat of government. Most capitals have been established or have grown up in towns or cities already existing. Not so the city of Washington. When, in April 1789, President Washington first entered upon his high office, there was no city of Washington, yet there was to be a federal city. The Constitution, framed and signed in 1787, provided that Congress might, quote, exercise exclusive legislation over such district not exceeding 10 miles square as may, by session of particular states and acceptance of Congress, become the seat of the government of the United States, unquote. Under this authority, Congress, by a law enacted on January 16, 1790, and amended July 16th the following, selected the present locality on the banks of the Potomac. Down to 25 years ago, there was talk from time to time of moving the capital to a more central location. These discussers rarely, or never, however, gave evidence of any acquaintance with the labor involved or the traditions of the compromise which resulted in the selection of the present site. Whoever will take the trouble to learn what it costs to do this will be either a very bold or a very foolish man to hope or expect that a removal of the capital is possible. The original grant by Virginia and Maryland, accepted by Congress in 1790 as the permanent seat of government, consisted of a tract of 100 square miles lying on both sides of the Potomac River. Under the direction of three commissioners appointed by Washington, this tract was surveyed by Major Andrew Ellicott in 1791. The boundary was traversed, chained, and cleared of timber, and a topographic map prepared of the hundred square miles comprised within these boundary lines. As the survey approached completion in the autumn of 1791, Ellicott asked the commissioners for the title or name to go on the map whereupon the commissioners formally passed on the matter. They answered, the city of Washington in the territory of Columbia. Thus, the city of Washington, as yet an airy nothing, but with a local habitation in the territory of Columbia, now received a name. This was 1791. Yet it took time to get the names into use. The imaginary city continued to be referred to chiefly as a jest under the old descriptive phrase, Federal City. When, in 1792, 
the boundary monuments were set along the Maryland part of the district boundary line. The word Maryland was cut upon that side of each stone which faced Maryland, but upon the side which faced what we now call the District of Columbia, the word Columbia does not appear. Instead of it, there appears in clear, large, and deep cut letters the words Jurisdiction of the United States. Obviously, this fact, rather than a name, was uppermost in the minds of the commissioners in 1791. And this fact is still unique in the history of all capitals. Congress legislates for the District of Columbia absolutely, and thus we have for the national capital this curious anomaly. It is legislated for, taxed, managed, controlled, and governed by the united voices of all the voters of the United States except its own. The citizens of Washington itself are the only ones in the United States who are by law deprived of all voice as to the management or control of Washington affairs. And what seems stranger still, these strange Washingtonians are well content with this hard fate, and would, it is believed, refuse to change it even if they had the power. Washington, it must be remembered, differs from other cities because it was intended to be different. Its site, when choice was made, is described as a wilderness, and for more than half a century did not cease to be ridiculed as such. And the plan of the city was completely drawn out on paper and marked out on the ground before any buildings appeared, just as happens with modern boom towns, but with this difference. In the boom town, the real estate speculation is the main motive. In the founding of the nation's capital, it was only an incident, and an incident which Jefferson strove to minimize by letting out either none or misleading information as to plans for public buildings and appropriations, as tracts reserved for the general government were called. The plan for the city was drawn up by a French engineer, Major Pierre-Charles Lafont, and his plans were doubtlessly examined, criticized, and approved by Washington. His original manuscript map, now faded and worn, is in the War Department in the custody of the Chief of Engineers. Some ten years ago, this now precious manuscript was taken to the Coast Survey Office, where it was carefully traced, photolithographed, and published. Copies of it are, or were, obtainable at the Coast Survey Office. This map may be said to represent Washington in embryo. Great praise is due to the proud L'Enfant for the part he took in designing the city, but his zeal, his pride, and his impetuosity soon brought a rupture. His services were dispensed with, the pay tendered him was spurned as unworthy of him. His remains rest in an unmarked grave in private grounds in the northeastern suburbs of the city. The relative credit due to L'Enfant and to Ellicott for the part taken by each in designing and laying out the city is still a mooted question, and the disagreement as to this is doubtless the reason why today no suitable public recognition of their services has ever been made. 
The interval between 1791 and 1800 was spent in erecting public buildings, the President's House, the Congress House, and others. In 1800, the government records were all brought over from Philadelphia. On June 15th, the public offices were first opened. Thus, June 15th, 1900, will be a suitable day for a public holiday in Washington for commemoration and retrospect. Men still live in Washington whose father served the United States in Philadelphia and who followed that little bunch of records, the entire archives of the Republic, to the imaginary city in the real wilderness on the Potomac nearly a century ago. According to the census of 1800, the inhabitants of the city of Washington numbered 3,210 souls. Down to 1850 or later, Washington continued to be a great straggling village. It grew, but it grew slowly. The foreign ambassador whose assignment brought him to Washington was prone to feel that he was banished. No pavements, no water supply, save from pumps in wells scattered here and there. No sewerage system, no streetcars, few schools and poor, and distances magnificently great. Indeed, Washington's greatness still existed chiefly in the imagination of its projectors. No manufacturers brought workmen here. It was not a commercial center. Instead, it might be likened to a great straggling college town, where all life is derived either at first or second hand from the college. So here there grew up about the government offices boarding houses for the transients and shopkeepers to supply the boarding houses. The War of 1812 had made little impress on the capital. The British troops occupied the city for a few hours in August 1814, burned the White House, set fire to the capital, and retired. But the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, had a very different effect and made a lasting impress. Washington, for four years, was one great military camp and hospital. A cordon of earthworks many miles in extent surrounded the city. Blue coats were everywhere, and the passing of endless trains of bronzed veterans, of sick and wounded, of artillery, of supplies, was too common a sight to attract either notice or comment. Into this camp there came by railroad one evening Mrs. Julia Ward Howe. Long abominating slavery, she saw in all this stern turmoil the fruition of the abolitionists' hope, and that out of this war was to emerge in freedom for black and white alike. From the car windows could be seen the campfire stretching miles away. After making a round of visits to various camps, the following day she returned to her hotel, her heart all on fire, and there wrote that immortal battle hymn of the Republic, beginning, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Recalling the circumstances under which these lines were penned, we can better understand such a line as this. I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. But the war ended at last. During it, even Pennsylvania Avenue, a street now as widely and as favorably known as any in the world, was at times a veritable mudhole, wherein artillery and wagon trains sometimes stalled. 
The white lot and monument grounds ceased to be used for slaughtering cattle for the army. The great mule-drawn wagons no longer went daily to the capital for the tons of bread baked in the little rooms under its west steps. The churches no longer housed the war-mangled and disease-stricken, and the war scars about the city began quickly to heal. The unsightliness of the half-finished dome of the capital faded with its completion. The tract of neglected undergrowth and wild woods, with its surrounding dilapidated picket fence, was transformed into the park which now faces the east front of the capital. The Washington Monument, which all during and for years after the war stood as an unsightly stump surmounted by wooden scaffolding, grew to a stately shaft, a thing of beauty, and the debris and litter which for twenty years or more had cumbered the ground at its base at last vanished. The old system of schools gave way to the new, and in 1876, Washington for the first time had a high school. Its Baptist College, now Columbian University, with a thousand students, dates from 1821, while the Jesuit College in Georgetown is yet older. The unique character of Washington and of its attractions steadily grows. Little by little, with passing years, men and women so circumstanced that they may live where they will select Washington for a home. The opportunities it affords for much of all that makes life attractive have been well expressed by one who has come to abide here. Four years in Washington to one who will take what may be had for the taking, much less the asking, is equivalent to a college education. End of section four. Recording by Devin Tatmo.